Hello, everyone. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the George Brew Show. I'm your host, George Brew. Today, I wanted to kick off our podcast with a really exciting episode with a theme of how to scale your startup, your tech startup, from just an idea to Series A. And we have no other guest to invite than Caleb Avery, who's the founder and CEO of Tilt. You might have not heard of Tilt yet, but it's an exciting company that has grown from just four people last year. Which is 2021 to this year, 2022, they have more than 40 people on their team, and they have raised both seed financing and Series A financing in just a span of 12 months. So that is a lot of development for a young company, and I'm really curious to see what is it like, what does it take to build a company that scales this fast. And we have no other guest than Caleb to walk us through his journey, his entrepreneurial journey, and how he's taking a path of not a really a traditional founder. Because he has worked in traditional payment industry for over a decade before starting his own business. So, what is it like? Let's dive into this episode right away. First of all, Caleb, thank you so much for joining the show today. It's super excited to have you on. Yeah, absolutely, man. I'm excited to be on the inaugural episode. That's that's pretty <laughs> exciting. Thank you so much, and super excited to talk about your company, Tio, and just your overall your entrepreneurial journey. So, before we dive into Tio, I'm really curious to learn about Caleb, your background, and how did you start it in entrepreneurship? So, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, my entrepreneurship journey started at 19、uh, in Greenville, South Carolina, going door to door selling credit card processing services to, to small business owners, and you know, certainly didn't start that thinking it was going to be this grand, you know, business that that we were building out. I think initially the plan was more how do we get beer money. You know, we were we were in college, but. As we started to get out there and started talking to small business owners, I think we just realized how big the pain point was with their credit card processing solutions and how frustrated they were with the existing options. And as time went on, you know, certainly turned into something much bigger than the way it started. Yeah, you talk about door to door sales, and I think a lot of founders, including myself, doesn't have the experience. How, what was that experience like for you? Not comfortable at first.、Uh, <laughs> I think it's just the the honest reality. But you know, as you get used to it and and you start just. Basically, forcing yourself to go out every day and just say, "Hey, I've got to hit twenty. I've got to hit twenty-five doors today." You start to get these good interactions and these good conversations where business owners thank you for coming in, and as you have those positive experiences, you know that kind of feeds you to say, "Hey, I want to go back tomorrow." And then, obviously, as you start to earn money and, and generate revenue from it, you know you get this positive reinforcement. But it's tough, you know, in the early、yeah. days. You know, you get the door slammed on you. You get people yelling at you. I mean, I could go on and on with, with some of the the stories. You know, over the years, from business owners that were less than thrilled to have yet another credit card processing agent walking in their door, but the the reality is, if you commit to it and have that you know repetition, eventually it's something that you get comfortable. That's、with. awesome. So, what was the pain point that you saw back then with the business owners in general? So, you know, in that first business, we were going out and primarily working with you know brick and mortar, you know, restaurant, retail, liquor store, salons, and. A lot of these small business owners were working with these behemoth, you know, public companies. They、yeah. they were working with Tesis. They were working with First Data. They were working with WorldPay. And the reality was, they were paying too much for credit card processing.、Uh, and oftentimes, they had a one eight hundred number, and that was the only way that they were able to get a hold of anyone. And so, if the terminal breaks, you know, God forbid, you've got to call this one eight hundred number and sit on hold for an hour, hour and a half. Trying to get a hold of of somebody. Meanwhile, you can't run your business. You know, you can't accept credit cards. You can't make sales. And so the idea was that that we were coming in and you know allowing these small business owners to to save money on their credit card processing. They had a cell phone number that they could call for 
support and just really offering them a much better experience than they had, you know, working with these behemoth institutions. That's awesome. And we're going to get back to that in a minute. Now I want to talk more about your prime company, which is a super exciting company called Tilt. Can you share more about what Tilt does to our audience? Certainly. So Tilt's platform, we call it Payfac as a service and really, you know, was born out of this need for integrated payment solutions for software platforms. And so our primary customers are people like dental software platforms, golf course management platforms, gym management platforms, property management solutions. And these software platforms needed, one, they needed to be able to embed payments within their solutions so that the dentist or the golf course or the gym would be able to accept payments. But really the idea behind Payfac as a service was born out of two big problems. One was the onboarding experience for their customers. And so Tilt solves that by offering an instant digital onboarding experience for these businesses. So that dentist doesn't have to fill out, you know, a six page PDF and print it and sign it and scan it and send it back with a driver's license, a copy of their baby, you know, avoided check, you know, previous processing statements. And so just making it easy for their customers to sign up for their solutions. And then the other thing is offering that software platform a share of the revenue. And so it becomes a very substantial recurring revenue stream for their business. And so by packaging together, you know, this incredible technology, this modern onboarding experience, and then this, you know, very exciting revenue stream. That, that's kind of the crux of the idea behind Payfac as a service. Okay. I think Payfac as a service is such a wonderful term. Um, so first of all, did you guys invent the term? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we did. Okay. So, you know, we went through a, a process and this was probably two years ago of just really thinking through the market and the existing options and, and how could we differentiate ourselves away from the other options in the market and really help people understand what the product was that we were offering. And after a pretty lengthy process <laughs> and a lot of input from different people, we came to this idea of Payfac as a service. I think, you know, we're certainly thankful that we came up with that term because I think it really perfectly embodies the, the spirit behind what we do here. At okay, Tilt. awesome. And I think Payfac just means payment facilitating as a service, right? So that's like the full name of it. Yeah. So Payfac is short for payment facilitator, which uh, is something that I, I believe WorldPay has the, the trademark on the, the shortened acronym <laughs> okay. uh, of Payfac, but definitely something that you know people in the industry uh, are, are pretty familiar with these days. Okay, that's awesome. So let's talk a little bit more about your customers because it sounds like what you just told me, Caleb, your customers are primarily enterprise customers. So like the bigger, can you tell us more about who they are? Yeah, good question. So certainly didn't start out uh, thinking that we were going to be targeting these, these enterprise platforms when we put together the, the first pitch deck and, and we're really thinking about the first customers that we were designing the solution for. Initially, we were thinking that we were going to be targeting customers between about 25 million and 500 million a year was kind of the initial, okay. you know, sweet spot two and a half years ago as we started thinking through, you know, the, the go-to-market uh, motion. But the reality was, as we started to get into market uh, and started to get inbound, you know, customers uh, coming and, and talking to Tilt about the problems that they were experiencing with integrated payments, the customers were a lot larger <laughs> yeah. than, you know, we originally uh, thought. And I think, you know, in the first couple of, of months of, of being live at the platform, we had something like 20 enterprise customers with over a billion dollars come inbound to us, wow. you know, reaching out to us on, on our website or reaching out to me on LinkedIn, just saying like, hey, we need help with our integrated payment solution. And so, you know, we're primarily focused on mid-market platforms, but I think our definition of mid-market has expanded over the years where now, you know, we would say our, our kind of core sweet spot is about 50 million a year up to about 2 billion in annual processing is really the sweet spot for Till. Not to say that we don't like working with startups. We got plenty <laughs> of startups that leverage our platform and certainly we love 
you know, our enterprise customers and have a number of clients that process, you know, well over that $2 billion mark. But the sweet spot and the core focus for us from a product design perspective has always been this mid-market uh, software company that I think had been left behind by a lot of the existing solutions available in the market uh, before Tilt. I agree. I agree so much. And one question I will always like to ask every entrepreneur is was the initial idea of your company. So was there anything inspired you to start Tilt? What does the process look like? Of course. So, you know, for me, between my ISO and Tilt, I was doing a lot of consulting work uh, with software platforms as well as actually investing in software platforms. And so I really just kept seeing the, the exact same problem over and over again with the clients that I was consulting with and with the companies that I was investing in where they just weren't really satisfied for a number of reasons with the existing options on the market, be it, you know, Stripe, Square, Braintree, be it Tesis, WorldPay, you know, First Data, there, there just were problems with those uh, existing options. And, you know, at the time, I just couldn't believe that there wasn't an option that offered the best of both worlds between the existing solution. So, you know, after seeing the same problem a couple dozen times, <laughs> felt like, hey, hey, maybe there's a market here to go build something out and finally d- decided to start, you know, putting my money where my mouth was and started Tilt. Yeah, that's a nice excellent journey. And you talk about companies with billions of dollars of annual, let's say, processing volume coming to you inbound. So you guys must be solving like a really, really painful problem. Like, what do you think the, the value, like that's a top one or two value Tilt bring to your customers? Certainly. So, you know, for a lot of these enterprise customers, the, the two big things that they're frustrated with, one is the technology experience that they have with their current partner. Uh, and then two is the onboarding experience. And, and those are kind of hand in hand. But from a technology perspective, you know, the problem with a lot of the existing solutions, it's pretty painful to get up and running. It can oftentimes take months to actually get interest to get integrated. And then even when you do from like a reporting perspective, some of the publicly traded <laughs> payments companies that the reporting experience for their integrated platforms is literally logging into a portal and downloading a CSV file. And that's the only way to get access to the data, which, you know, for developers and software engineers, certainly not the preferred experience. And so being able to offer them a reporting API where they can attach metadata and key value pairs to some of the, the key pieces of information you know, on the platform creates a much more modern experience than, you know, oh, Susie, can you go log in and download that CSV file and send it to Frank because we got to do, you know, reporting this week. And so that solves a pretty fundamental pain point. And then the onboarding experience, I think, is the other big one where a lot of these big companies, you know, we've got a couple of clients that have, you know, let's say 5,000 customers that use their like SaaS software, but only a thousand of those customers have actually signed up for their integrated payment solution. And it's because they're asking them to fill out PDF documents and send back, you know, supporting documentation and wait a couple of weeks to get their applications approved. And it's just not the seamless integrated experience that, you know, I think these platforms and their customers are really, you know, striving for. And so we offer them that modern technology coupled with that improvement in the experience for their customers through that streamlined onboarding. Yeah, that's awesome. And I do want to talk about, you know, like your experience in the payment industry in general, because people say that if you spend too much time in one industry, you become an absolute expert. And I know, Caleb, you're in the payment industry when you started your first business till now has been 10 years in payments. What are the biggest things that you learned from 10 years in payments? Certainly. I think one of the biggest shifts that I've seen over the course of the 10 years and part of what's created this opportunity for Till, you know, when I got started more than 10 years ago, it was really all about traditional payments. There really weren't a lot of like software led vertical software options available 
for small business owners. And so if you were a, a small business owner, you know, wanting to get access to credit card processing, you talked to somebody like myself when I walked in the door of your business, you know, you weren't going online and looking for to- toast and mind body in, in these companies primarily didn't exist. There weren't very many vertical software platforms 10 years ago, whereas, you know, you fast forward to today and software-led payments are increasingly eating into the payments landscape and sucking up market share from the legacy incumbents. And, and that shift has been pretty exciting to watch. But when you look at the options that are available to these software platforms, they're still leveraging a lot of the same technology that was available 10 years ago yeah. from TSIS and from First Data and from WorldPay. And like the reality is the world has changed and the needs of merchants and the needs of platforms has changed. And so I think, you know, I certainly have the perspective of kind of where things have been and, you know, like to think that I kind of see where things are going and are trying to build more for where I think the world is headed versus, you know, where the the world has been historically. Yeah, of course, that's just an awesome experience. And when speaking of payments, I think many of us in tech, the first thing that we think about is Stripe. And I know, Caleb, I think you, I'm not sure if you mentioned Stripe is not really your direct competitor, but I'm sure it gets bringing up to you a lot. So... Tell us what's the difference between, you know, Stripe and Teal, because I think there are so many differences out there. Certainly. Yeah, I think (laughs) Stripe comes up in almost every conversation with investors and and certainly comes up, you know, a lot with customers. And, you know, I I think Stripe has built a a fantastic business, Uh, you know, the $100 billion company. So no one can argue that it's not a great product. I think that the question is, who is it a great product for? And, you know, when you look at the history of their business, They've primarily been targeting e-commerce, you know, merchants, uh, which is not Tilt's focus. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so, you know, when you look at their solution relative to ours, we have really tailor built a solution for software platforms. And so a couple of the big differences, you know, one from a white label perspective, we really give these software platforms the tools to have almost right out of the box, a complete white label experience so that they can have their brand front and center to their customers, which really is not the Stripe model. You know, from an economics perspective, as much as I, I keep hearing that Stripe is moving in the direction of offering more margin to software platforms, the reality is I, I just haven't seen it. Yeah. And so we certainly are offering a, a much more exciting, you know, revenue share opportunity to the software platforms. And I think one of the biggest points of differentiation is in our omni-channel experience. And you know, when I say omni-channel, for <laughs> for those of you that aren't, uh, you know, payments <laughs> nerds like like myself, I'm talking about the ability to both process card not present, you know, online transactions, invoice, virtual terminal, hosted payment page, but also actually have a physical terminal in the doctor's office or the gym or, you know, the golf course. And the reality is Stripe just hasn't to date brought a solution to market from a card present perspective that really solves a lot of the pain points that these software platforms have. And so we are feeling, I think, a pretty big gap you know, in the market offering this true omni-channel solution for software platforms, where for a number of our clients, the majority of their payments are processed through a terminal (laughs) in the physical location. And so that has been a pretty big differentiator for us and and certainly brought in a good portion of the customers that we've signed up since launching last year. Yeah. And I think like for myself, like as a Sarah founder, I've been using Stripe. So I do think it's an amazing service. But I do think like in terms of savings and getting the money that we process of getting a part of that coming back to us, I just don't see it. Haven't seen that yet. And personally, I don't see that happening maybe for the next couple of years. So I think you guys are providing a lot of value by giving, I'm assuming it's giving a portion of that money back to the facilitator to pay your customers yourself, right? Is that correct? 
Yeah. So the tilled model is based upon this concept of a revenue share. And so if you think about from a software company perspective, let's say, you know, you're a a golf course management platform and you've got 700 golf courses processing $100 million in transactions on on Stripe, your customers are paying $3 million in processing fees and that $3 million goes to Stripe. Yeah. You you don't really know how much margin Stripe's making and there's not a lot of transparency there. But in the tilt model, the idea is that out of that $3 million uh, in processing fees, it probably only costs, let's say, 2% or $2 million to actually process wow. all of those credit card transactions. And so there's this like million dollars of revenue that's available. And, you know, certainly our model is predicated on sharing the lion's share, you know, of that million dollars uh, in revenue with the software platforms that choose to partner with. Yep. And I see this model, like I personally see this model being the future, because even when I'm talking with small business owners, you know, in DC, New York, different places, all they complain, even like the coffee shops and, you know, the printer shops, all they complain about is that they have to pay three to 4% to payment processors. And it's so painful for small businesses. And I think people are already coming in and solving this problem, right? But I'm assuming it's way, way more painful. I'm assuming for larger businesses who are processing so much volume, who have so much left on the table. So what was their experience when you talk to them and say, hey, we can offer this? Do they just don't believe such thing exists? Too good to be true? There's definitely sometimes the attitude of like, tell me more. It sounds you know too good to be true. But the reality is you kind of peel back the onion and dive into the problems that these software platforms are, are experiencing, you know, they're either upset that they're not, you know, earning revenue off of the crazy rates that their customers are paying, or they're actually unable to sign some of their customers that are just unwilling to pay 2.9% and 30 cents. Yeah. And so to your point about the small business owner, you know, being frustrated, a lot of these small business owners are, are just saying like, look, we're not willing to pay 2.9% and 30 cents. We've got a terminal here from TSIS and we pay two and a half percent, why would we all of a sudden now pay 3.2% or something to process our credit card transactions? And so by giving these platforms the flexibility to price at, at different price points for their customers, not only are you creating this new revenue stream, but you're actually unlocking new customers that want to work with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but with the existing pricing models and existing solutions that they had before, they were physically unable to sign up some of the customers that trust them and are on their platform, you know, for their payment solution. And so it's definitely exciting to be able to open up those types of opportunities for our customers to really bring a solution to market that fits the needs of all of their customers, not just a subset that are willing to pay exorbitant rates for credit card processing. Yeah. And I think Teal's like model, I think your story is like, it's a very positive signal to those entrepreneurs who wanted to start a payment business. Because when I used to want to start a payment business, everyone's like, oh, but you're too late. Stripe already does that. Square already does that. So it just kind of feels discouraging not to start something just because someone has already done it. And I mean, like Caleb, like your company, you've already built this and it's like growing fast. So I think it counters the notion that everything is too late, too late to start. Like, well, what do you think on this? I think the key is to find a niche and find a, a gap in the product side of your, your competitor just because their business exists and, and is you know seemingly doing well on paper doesn't mean that they've solved the problem for every single customer that exists in the market. And so find that gap, find the niche. And then the question is, is that niche big enough to build a business that's exciting for you and exciting for employees and exciting for investors? And if the answer is still yes, then it doesn't really matter if you're late to the party. You know, in some ways, I feel like we had a huge advantage coming into the market uh, when we did because we had the benefit of seeing what Stripe built and seeing what Finex had tried to build and seeing, you know, what these competitors had brought to market. 
and then going out and talking to customers and saying, well, what do you not like about these various solutions? And then we tailor built a product knowing exactly what the issues and pain points were <laughs> with customers in the market with the existing solutions. And so, I, I mean, frankly, in some ways, I think being late to the party can be a pretty big advantage yep. if you use that advantage strategically. And I think you guys not only did innovation, like you're not just using the same tech and, and do it again and or focusing on niche. You did a business model innovation, as I understand it, and you did a technology innovation, as I understand it too. So it's not just processing payments. It's like way more. So can you talk a little bit more about the way more that you guys have done? <laughs> you know, when we when we first got started, we, we weren't necessarily intending for it to be as ambitious of a build out as it ended up being. But I think as we got into the process of talking to customers and building out the solution and, and researching the market, we started to realize how big the opportunity was for us to get into, you know, the space. Uh, plus, we've been fortunate to raise, you know, a reasonable amount of capital for the business, which really allows us the opportunity to build things you know, in a different way where when I was financing a lot of the, the early days yeah. of the business, you kind of have to make different choices. Whereas, you know, now we're, we're in a position where we're very well capitalized. We're able to bring in incredible talent into the business and I think build things in a different way. And, you know, from a business model, uh, you know, innovation perspective, it was innovative in the sense that we went a different direction than any of the other fintech platforms. Yeah. But in a way, we kind of copied the business model that's been working in the legacy channels for decades, frankly. Yeah. And so we, we kind of brought an existing business model that had been working you know, quite well in, in other markets and brought that into this space. And so it, it looks innovative because it's different <laughs> than what any of our competitors are, are doing, but it's really a, a tried and true you know, model that we brought to the table with, with modern technology and, and a new approach. And uh, you know, at this point, it certainly seems like the market appreciates the, the combination of puzzle pieces that, that we brought together. Yeah, certainly. And I think you mentioned something very interesting um, is that early days, right? So early days is very different from having funding and you mentioned having to put a lot of money yourself, which is something I have personally built in my, my startups first early days. I want to bring up the early days to start with, you know, the first few customers, because I think even for smaller B2B companies, that is the biggest challenge going to get customers. And I wanted to bring up Stripe here as well, because I think Stripe got started by being in the Y Combinator, and they have so many startup companies that they can you know, be able to work with and get up as companies. And they use that to get the larger companies to use them, right? So that's kind of like their journey. But for you guys, it's a lot harder because you have to tackle those large businesses first on, sometimes maybe before you even have a product, before you even have anything. So take us to 2019 when Teal was just getting started. What was it like to get the first few customers? Yeah. So I think the, the kind of journey for us went, went through a couple of different phases where, you know, in the early days, we, we knew that we had a pretty lengthy software build ahead of us where we were thinking, you know, probably 18 to 24 months it ended up being a little bit longer, you know, of actual, you know, software build out. And so the true early days, we were really going out and doing what I would say more like customer discovery. It really was not pre-sales. It was, hey, we really want feedback. Like, should we continue investing time and money yeah. into building out, you know, this platform? And if we do, what features are important to you? What problems are you experiencing with the current, you know, solutions? And so we went out and ran this customer discovery process where we talked with dozens of software founders and I think got pretty candid feedback uh, from them because it wasn't like we were trying to sell them something. Yeah. At that time, we were a long ways off from having a product. We were saying, hey, founder to founder, can you give me, you know, some insight into the market and into the current solutions uh, and the pain points that you had there? And so that was where we started. And I think I would certainly encourage anyone considering starting a business. That, that's a really important part of the product build 
uh, process to get that early feedback. And then, you know, you fast forward a little bit as we were getting closer to having the product available, LinkedIn became a pretty important part of the journey uh, for us. And, and frankly, to this day still remains, you know, a pretty important part of the go to market motion for the business. But it really started with me just like posting about my experience and posting about the idea of like, hey, here's what we're building. Like, do you guys find this this interesting? And I was certainly blown away by the amount of people that reached out saying like, that is the exact pain point that we're experiencing, you know, with our platform. Can we set up a call? And so, you know, I put out, it's probably over a year ago, I put out two posts kind of announcing the, the concept behind Payfac as a service. And just from those two posts, we had about 40,000 views wow. uh, on LinkedIn. But more importantly, we had 40 software companies <laughs> that reached out to us that were like, oh my gosh, we're experiencing, you know, all these problems that that you laid out in your post. Like, I'd love to learn more about the concept of Payfac as a service. And so, you know, just getting that messaging out there costs us nothing. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, a, a number of those are current clients uh, that, that work with us today. Yeah, I think so many things to unpack here. The first thing I think you said about validating the idea, which I personally think is very important because I've worked with, you know, many young founders. And I think the biggest mistake they've made is they build something before they validate it. So for you guys, you know, was there anything specific that you've done besides what you just said about, you know, talking to founders, figuring out anything else that you think might help? Yeah. So for us, you know, one of the things, you know, the outcome being kind of the term payback as a service was really, you know, trying to be a student of the market as much as we could to really understand the competitive landscape and, you know, where we fit within the, the ecosystem, because that really informs your product build. If we had said, hey, we're building something for startups, we would have built a different product. We would have designed a different website. We would have designed different marketing. If we were only targeting enterprise customers, that would have been a different product. And so, you know, we really spent a lot of time defining that ideal customer profile. And it was informed by some of that customer discovery interviews, but it was also some of it's like a gut feel of like, here's how the landscape is set up. Here's where I feel like the opportunity is. And so defining your niche, defining your ideal customer profile is super important, you know, part of yeah. the process because it really should inform a lot of the build, the messaging and the different parts of the process as you're figuring out your go-to-market motion. Yeah, certainly. And I think one of the things, you know, early stage startups face is that the need of pivoting a lot. So like for you guys, I know it's like, you know, a, a predetermined concept. It's a very specific pain point. You guys validated it. But is there any pivot that you have done in the past couple of years? From a pivot perspective, we haven't really changed much around the, the product or the market that we were targeting. I think the biggest change for us was in the go-to-market motion where, you know, okay. initially we were planning a much heavier, like bring in, you know, BDRs and hire a bunch of salespeople and do a lot of, you know, outbound emails, a lot of outbound calling, you know, campaigns. And as we started to see the success on LinkedIn, driving inbound, and then frankly, starting to get uh, referral partners coming inbound, we, we really shifted the go-to-market motion, you know, as we were uh, taking the product out to market, because we were just experiencing tremendous success driving inbound into the business. But that was never the plan. Like we didn't sit down and say, oh, yeah. LinkedIn's going to drive, you know, 90% of our, our traffic for the first you know, six months, I, I would have thought you were crazy if anyone had suggested that as the plan. But the reality was, as we started to do it in practice, it was just working. And so we were just responding to, okay, this is working. And still to this day, we haven't really invested a tremendous amount of resources into an outbound motion because we've been able to drive so much interest inbound over the last 12, 18 months. Do you want to talk a little bit more as like, you know, 
doing sales while being an early stage founder yourself. So like for me, I'm not really a sales type founder. I think I'm more of a technical founder per se. So when I first started my first business, it was very difficult for me to get out there and speak to people and find out the go-to-market strategies. We had to do a lot of pivoting. And for someone who hasn't done sales, it's just very difficult. So Kayla, I know in the beginning of the podcast, we mentioned that you're doing door-to-door sales. And do you think that has helped you in building Teal? Unbelievably helpful. (laughs) Uh, And and I think some of it is just the idea that I, I don't mind people telling me no. Like you go out and you knock 25 doors, you might get one or two people that are even willing to talk to you. And so, you know, that's a tremendous amount of rejection that I was used to facing on a, on a daily basis. Uh, and so, you know, my attitude is like, what's the worst that can happen? I, I'll go out and talk to anybody and everybody, you know, about till and worst case, they're not interested. You know, it doesn't affect me. Yeah. And so, you know, I think if you can have that sense of like self-worth from within where it's like, I don't necessarily care if you're excited about what I'm building. Cause I'm just so excited that like, your energy and your response is not going to affect, you know, how I feel about, you know, what I'm building, but it is Gary, like getting out there and, you know, talking about your baby, you know, your, your startup yeah. uh, that, that you're building, but you just have to do it. You have to get out there and put yourself out there and, and try and figure out how to deal with that rejection. Cause the reality is people are going to say, no, investors aren't going to be interested. Customers aren't going to be interested. Employees, you know, aren't going to be interested, but find the people that are really excited about what you're building and double down on those relationships, I, I think is really important. Okay. And I think most of the people that I just mentioned, the founders, including myself, the biggest fear is just getting rejected. Although, you know, like we, we grew up in, a, in a such delicate times, I think. <laughs> like we, we don't face a lot of no's in our daily conversations, daily lives. But when you start doing sales, it's a no is a game. And I think a lot of people don't realize that getting no is part of the game, is part of how it works. So what was your experience of dealing with rejection? I know you mentioned don't take it personally. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to share about getting rejected? Yeah. You know, for, for us, as we were going out and talking with the early customers and, and early investors, every one of those pieces of rejection is actually pretty valuable feedback. You know, if the investor is saying, hey, mm-hmm. you know, I don't like the go-to-market motion or the, the business model, you know, doesn't make sense to me. Take that feedback and maybe it's bad feedback. <laughs> maybe it's good feedback, but, you know, think through <laughs> it. And it's like, okay, well, why are they giving me this feedback? Why do they not like my go-to-market motion? Okay, they didn't feel like it was diversified. We, we were solely, you know, focused on outbound. Let's add an inbound or let's add, you know, a referral strategy and, and take that as, you know, constructive feedback. It's not just them being mean, but most people that are offering yeah. you feedback and saying, no, they're, they're not doing it from a place of, hey, I really want to hurt George's feelings. They're just like, I don't get it or I'm not excited or maybe you're just not communicating the vision or you're not explaining it, you know, in a way that, that makes sense to them. And so try and take it as much as you can as constructive, you know, criticism. I, I remember one of the best pitches that I ever had, and I'll use the term best in air quotes, uh, was with a guy that I know locally and he absolutely shredded my pitch. This was, it was probably like pitch number three or four for me. And he just okay. ripped me apart for like 10 minutes and just gave me all this feedback about, felt like a lot. It was like, here's 15 reasons why I don't want to invest in your business. And like, you know, the first hour I was like, man, you know, really shredded me. But like, took that night to really think through it. And it's like, okay, well, that was fantastic feedback. And the next guy that I spoke with after that pitch, we actually got a term sheet from. And so, you know, you've got to take, you know, that, that feedback and and see like, how can I learn from this? How can I change what I'm doing or the story or how I'm communicating it to try and get my point across, you know, more, more clearly. And, you know, at least for for me in in that moment, it, it certainly helped. 
Yeah, I certainly wish I knew your feedback. <laughs> I know I, I can listen, rewind the last 10 minutes of this podcast and just learn about the sales questions. But I, I know you mentioned about investor feedback. And I think it is a little bit of a controversial topic in tech and startup because some people say you shouldn't listen to all the investor feedback because some, because you know your business the best, right? For someone who's raising and getting a lot of feedback from investors, like what's your advice? Yeah, I would definitely agree. You don't want to listen to every bit of feedback you get, whether that's from investors or you know your, your mom or you know whoever it is that, that you're getting feedback from. Not not all feedback is, is accurate. And I think as a founder, you have to be that person that's going to interpret the, the feedback and say, hey, this is fantastic feedback. Let's go make these changes. And sometimes you just outright disagree with people and you're like, you know what? I'm very confident in you know the ICP or the, the go-to-market motion or the pricing model. Like I'm just gonna do this. And let's see what happens. But like log that in the back of your brain. And as you're going to market, if yeah. eight people have told me they hate the pricing model and then you get out to market <laughs> and customers also aren't liking the pricing model, well, maybe you're wrong. <laughs> but you have yeah. to be that kind of ultimate decider because that's your job. When you're the founder, when you're the CEO, you get the final call on what feedback are you going to take and make changes. And when are you going to listen to your gut, listen to your vision and just say, thank you for the feedback, but this is the path that we're going on. Yeah. And when you're building Teal, like, do you seek a lot of other help or advice from other founders? Certainly. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for me, you know, it was my first time being in the CEO chair uh, and frankly, my first time raising capital from this side of the table. I am yeah. in the investor offering capital, uh, but it was my first time fundraising from this side. And so, yeah, I mean, the first couple of years, I, I was always out chatting with people that were further ahead, you know, in the journey that, that I was to say, okay, like, hey, what worked well for you? You know, what didn't work well and certainly paid tremendous dividends, you know, for me as we were going through the, the early days building the business. And then, you know, certainly in the f fundraising process to learn, you know, from from mentors and, and other founders. And I think other founders are a really great resource because oftentimes they're just doing it to be nice. Like it's not like they're yeah. expecting you to pay them. Maybe you buy them lunch or something, but it's really just <laughs> this like special relationship that I think, you know, founders have because they just appreciate the pain <laughs> that, that you're going through. Yeah. It's like, if I can help in, in any way and offer just a little bit of advice or, or something that's going to make your journey a little bit easier, I think most founders are happy to do that and kind of pay it forward to people that are going through the experiences that we've all gone through uh, having built yeah. businesses. Yeah, that, that, that's such a valid point. I think especially right now, you know, during COVID, everything's virtual. For some founders, especially the founders which are starting out, I think it's sometimes maybe mentally difficult to think, how can I reach out to someone who's building a successful business? So like when you reach out to founders, is it mostly through, you know, code outreach on LinkedIn or is it, you know, some other methods? Cold, Share a cold email, cold LinkedIn. You know, I've been a okay. cold caller for, you know, many years. So I'm certainly not afraid to, you know, send, send somebody an email. And, you know, the reality is if you're coming from like a genuine place of like, hey, I really value your experience. I would really like some help with thinking through X, Y, or, or Z. Maybe they don't respond, but that's the worst case. Worst case scenario, you send yeah. them an email and it, it doesn't go anywhere. Best case scenario, they respond, you get time and you get some super valuable insight. And so I, I guess from my perspective, I just feel like I had nothing to lose by reaching out to some of these folks. Some of them were investors, some of them, you know, mentors and, and some of them other founders, but got a ton of, you know, fantastic insights and advice that cost me nothing and, and certainly benefited, you know, me and the till journey. Yeah, I think that's super valid. And I wish more founders would do something that you did by reaching out more because I think certainly helps a lot. I started doing this a few months ago, actually, as a founder. And even speaking with you, Caleb, it has helped me so much 
even this podcast, this episode, talking to you. I've learned so much as a founder, and I wish I've learned, you know, two years ago. So let's talk a little bit more about next. I think it's about expressing yourself and both building publicly, because I know Kelby is something that you're very passionate about. So I started posting more and more on LinkedIn because I saw your posts and I saw how passionate you are about, you know, posting and building publicly. How, how did I get started? Can we just learn a bit more about that? Yeah, I was certainly not a very active member of the LinkedIn community for most of my tenure on LinkedIn, which I, I think is true of most people. I think the stats are something like 1% of the LinkedIn community posts on LinkedIn, which to me is, is crazy uh, at yeah. this point, because it's just such a tremendous opportunity to build your personal brand, your business brand and get eyes on you know what you're building. And it really doesn't cost anything other than time to get that yeah. message out there. And you know, for me, as I think I mentioned a little bit earlier in the podcast, like it wasn't this like master plan of like, oh, LinkedIn is the key to, you know, world domination. It was just like, I got started by just posting about my experience and, and just trying to kind of share like, here's what I'm going through, you know, on a day to day basis, as a founder, as a dad, as a guy living my life. And I think I have been just overwhelmed by the responses uh, that, that I've gotten all, almost all positive, <laughs> not always, okay, yeah, uh, of course. But, but almost all have been, you know, overwhelmingly positive. And for us, at this point, you know, LinkedIn is probably 30, 40% of the inbound that we drive to Tilda as a business. And I think as we started to see results from posting on LinkedIn, like that's the ultimate feedback. Like when you actually start to generate revenue and sign customers from the activity on LinkedIn, that certainly is pretty motivating to continue on in the process. But for me, it didn't start out that way. It wasn't like, hey, I'm doing this to attract customers. It's really coming from a genuine place of like, I want to share the experience that I'm going through. And if anybody else gets value out of that, then that's, you know, rewarding uh, for me. Cause I think that's really what it's more about is just having that, that shared experience and, you know, how can we all help each other grow our collective businesses? Yeah. And I think your post is, is super awesome because it's mostly positive. It's mostly something I look forward to. It's like positive energy. So I, I'm sure a lot of people t- tell you that as well. So when I open LinkedIn, I don't want to see, you know, some news about, you know, people getting funded or anything like, which is great news, but, you know, not very relevant to me as a person browsing through LinkedIn. But for your post, I think a lot of it is educational as well. The journey as a founder, the journey building TO and all that. So how did you decide which content to post on LinkedIn? Yeah, good question. I think there's a couple of different avenues around how we post and the types of content that we put out. A big part of it is meant to be educational content. And so, you know, pretty early on, I mean, geez, a year before we launched, the actual business and, and started to bring on customers. We hired a part-time content writer to work with me and interviewed me on a weekly basis, uh, putting out blogs. Okay. So for me, like I love talking about payments and I love talking about Tilt. But if you ask me to sit down and write 500 word blog post, it's just never going to happen. I'm going to put it off, and I just know that <laughs> about myself. And so yeah. I brought somebody in who that was their that was their specialty. And so you know she would interview yeah. me, and I could talk for. 30 minutes and do my thing. And then she would put together this content that was a million times better than anything I would ever write, you know, if I sat down, but it was really, it's all meant to be educational content on different aspects of payments. And and a lot of it's really not about tilt. It's just, Hey, what is interchange? What is a pay fact? What, how do you think about risk? What is, you know, PCI compliance. And so it's trying to introduce people to all the jargon that exists in the, in the payments <laughs> industry and just try and yeah. distill it down to a place where like people can actually understand like what is PCI compliance? What is interchange plus 
pricing because until you understand you know these concepts, it's pretty hard to make buying decisions about which partner is going to be the right payments company for me if you don't have that genuine level of understanding. And so I think we definitely tried to position ourselves as a thought leader in the space and put out a lot of like free educational content that anyone can go to our website and just learn more, you know, about payments. And then, you know, on top of that kind of blog, long form educational content, a lot of it's me sharing my personal experience. Like, Hey, here's what happened in my day today. And a lot of it's good. Like we've been on a pretty awesome journey, you know, the last <laughs> couple of years. And so, you know, sharing that experience, but you know, I, I put out a post last week, like we lost a couple of big deals that I really thought we were going to win. And it's like, it hurt. I was upset, you know, that, that we lost those deals, but like, that's what was going on, you know, in my day. And so I think the thing for me is just always trying to be genuine. This is genuinely the experience that I'm going through. It's not just trying to, you know, put out the kind of Instagram, you know, feel good story. Look at me and my, <laughs> that's, that's not <laughs> the vibe that I'm going for. It's just like what's happening in my day. And I think people appreciate that the kind of genuine nature of the content and you're a lot more likely to have positive results if you're posting kind of genuinely what's happening your experiences than just trying to like put on a show for others yeah totally and i think that's so important caleb about posting about failures because as an entrepreneur there's no way that you don't fail and you know many of us fail on a weekly basis (laughs) or daily basis yeah so i think you know sometimes you look at twitter you look at other platforms you know it's all about oh everyone's doing so well everyone's doing so great there's not much about you know the pain points of building a business being mentioned and i think that's so super important so tell us more about you know the, what you just mentioned about the large companies that you lost how was it like and how did you overcome it yeah i mean for us we have a lot of big partners in, in our pipeline but every deal is important you know at the stage that we're at you know with our business like i care about every single one of our customers and you know i'm still pretty intimately involved in the in the sales process for each deal and when you're working on a lot of these enterprise deals oftentimes you're in these conversations for three, six, nine plus months. And so you really get to know yeah. the people that, that you're working across. And so it's like, personally, it hurts, you know, when you lose some of these big deals, but the reality is, is you reflect upon it. It's like, you know, what could I have done differently in the sales process? Or was our product actually perfectly suited, you know, for, for these companies? And the reality was like, our, our product actually wasn't the best fit for these organizations. It wasn't about price. It wasn't like we made this huge mistake in the sales process, we just, there are some features, you know, that we need to release on the platform to be a better fit for these industries. And so, you know, you take that feedback, you go back and regroup with the product team and say, like, hey, let's just be honest with ourselves. Like we actually weren't the best fit for this customer. And, you know, it's probably better that they didn't sign up with us because uh, we weren't going to be able to offer them the experience that I think we want all of our customers to have. But it certainly helps inform like, hey, these are really important features especially for some of these enterprise deals that we need to get these features in place so that, you know, we're not going to lose a deal over a feature on the platform. Yeah. And I think that's such an important mindset about learning from your mistakes and not really letting it get in the way. And I think that's what makes a builder an entrepreneur. You mentioned a lot about sales. I do want to ask you a question about, you know, picking a sales leader, because I know, you know, for early stage founders, you know, maybe when they raise revenue, when they raise money or when they have really good revenue, they start considering when is the time I delegate sales to someone I can directly report to. So what was that like for Teal? Do you guys have you know a sales leader or anything like that? Yeah, great question. I think the kind of point in time when you hire a sales leader differs for different organizations and depends on the product that you're selling, depends on the skill set of the founder. It sounds like for you, you want to get out of sales you know, yesterday. <laughs> but I think <laughs> founder-led sales is a, is a very important part of the process. 
especially for me, I, I'm also very heavily involved in the product roadmap. And so being involved in the sales conversations is not only valuable in the sense that I think I can help close more deals, but it's also you've got your ear to the ground on customer feedback about the, the product and the, and the pricing model. And that feedback is just so valuable, especially when you're getting it firsthand and you're hearing directly from the customer, like, man, if you had this feature, if this feature operated slightly differently, like that's exactly what we're looking for. Hey, this part of the, the pricing model, you know, isn't resonating uh, with me. That feedback is so important. And so I, I think hiring a sales leader too early, I think is a pretty big mistake that a lot of you know founders make where for most founders, you're going to be the best person at communicating the passion and the vision behind you know, what you're building, but you also need that feedback from yeah. customers. We have actually just yesterday signed uh, an offer letter with a, a director of sales. And so, you know, we've waited quite a long time to bring in true leadership into the sales organization. But for us, you know, we made a tremendous hire on our first sales hire, which is a really tough hire. Bringing in, whether it's a sales leader or account executive, bringing in that first sales rep into the equation as a startup is so hard because there's so much ambiguity. You know, the product's evolving. Sometimes the customer profile changes dramatically or the market yeah. that you're chasing changes dramatically. And so having somebody that has that entrepreneurial mindset, like, hey, let's let's figure this out together. And there's not a ton of structure. There's not a ton of process. There may not be a commission plan, but, you know, yeah. somebody that, that can really work with you to figure out the ICP and get to that product market fit, I think is almost the more important hire in the early days where you don't necessarily need as much process and rigor around the the kind of sales engine. It's really like, let's figure out what customers want and get that feedback so that once we nail down the, the market and the ICP and the, and the product, you can start bringing in sales leadership to scale out the organization and, and help the business grow. Yeah. And I think that's so important about taking some time to hire the first salesperson, because sometimes when you hire a quick salesperson, like you said, things change very fast. And I think some salespeople are not very polite or friendly about that. For example, a change in the compensation structure, a change in the sales playbook. So I, I totally agree with you on, on that, Caleb. So now I want to talk more about growth, because I think it's something that you have posted. And let me rephrase that from LinkedIn. So I think you said one year ago, you guys just onboarded your first team member. And now today you have more than 40 team members on the team. And I just think that's such awesome journey. It's like, it's almost like nine, 10 times growth and such a hyper growth. So what was it like to let a team from four to 40? Yeah, pretty crazy experience is kind of the, the honest answer because life just looks so much differently from, from my seat, and my vantage point, you know, where with four people on the team, every single one of those people title is basically irrelevant. We're all doing whatever yeah. we have to do you know, for the business to win. And, you know, everybody's got on multiple hats and typically you're all in all the meetings together. Like there's not a lot of meetings yeah. where it's like, oh, well, we only need three of the four of us. It's like, you just operate together as a team. Whereas when you get to the point where we are today, you know, over 40 people, I think, you know, the next couple of weeks, we'll have about 55 people on the team wow. with all the offers, you know, that we've had accepted over the, over the last two weeks. There's a number of things that change, you know, for one, people get much more specialized in the roles that they're in. It's not just, hey, I run technology. It's like, okay, well, no, you're actually in quality assurance or you're in security or you're a developer. Uh, and so it's you get in these much more specialized roles where your day-to-day -day is a little bit less fluid <laughs> and you have a better sense of kind of, you know, what you're going to, to work on. But you also don't often have the entire team together. Like it's pretty rare that we get 
45 people in a room together to have conversations. And so the leadership level and communication and accountability and structure becomes so much more important because, you know, what I'm saying, how is that being translated, you know, several levels down the organization? Does everybody on the team understand what the goals are of the business? What are the most critical things that, that we all need to be doing, you know, on a daily and a weekly basis to drive, you know, results within the business? And do you have the right leaders on board your team that are hiring the right people underneath them, setting the, you know, the right goals for their team, holding them accountable. And then, you know, I think a big thing is the culture. How is the culture evolving as you grow? Because one of the things that I say is like every person that you hire and bring onto the team changes the culture of the company. Now that can be good or bad, but the reality is every person is changing the culture, especially the leaders that you bring on board. And so as you're hiring directors and you're hiring VPs, don't underestimate how important culture is in that hiring process because they're going to be hiring teams underneath them and they're going to be responsible for that communication downstream to their teams. And so, you know, don't just go chase the logo of, oh, well, they were at Apple or they were at, you know, PayPal, but, you know, geez, I I hate the guy. You know, you need to find somebody that has the skill set and has the right behaviors, but also kind of fits the culture of the organization. Otherwise, it can get pretty toxic pretty quickly. Yeah. And I do want to mention more about recruiting because as many post-seed founders find that recruiting is one of their top challenges. It seems like the growth has, for you guys, have been tremendous, tremendous growth. So do you supervise all the hiring or do you delegate some of that to others? Not at all. <laughs> okay. I think anyone on our, on our team knows I hate interviews. It's like one of the things I just really don't enjoy. And I've always known that about myself. And so it's actually <laughs> one of the, the early things that I delegated where I am involved when we're hiring senior leaders. But most of the time I'm interviewing from a cultural perspective, like, do I think this person is going to contribute positively to the culture of the organization? Because they've already gone through the stages of interviewing with other members of the team where we know they've got the right background in whatever area, you know, they're operating in. So it's not, you know, at that point in the process, it's not up to me to interview them for that. So certainly, you know, delegate a lot of that. But, you know, from a recruiting perspective, we've certainly been fortunate to hire as many people as we have over the last 12 months. And I think two of the things that we've done that have been pretty crucial for that has been looking in network, just asking anybody and everybody that we know, like, hey, do you know anybody that's a UI UX designer or product manager, you know, whatever role we're searching for, like putting the word out there far and wide to our investors, to our friends, to people that we worked with previously, and just casting a pretty wide net has certainly been beneficial because a couple of the benefits of hiring in network, you're getting known quantities. And so there are people that you either already know personally that you've worked with that they're going to ramp up faster. There's less risk in the hire or they're coming from a trusted source where it's like, this is the best product manager I've ever worked with. You need to hire them. And so it it takes a little bit of the risk out of the process. You're also saving money on recruiting fees. (laughs) And so (laughs) that, you know, pre-seed seed stage, like you don't have the funding to go pay 40 grand or something for placement fee on every hire that you're making. And so being able to organically attract talent is pretty important. And, you know, even for us at this stage, you know, we're fortunate to have the capital that we do, but it also becomes about time to fill. And so not only are you trying to, you know, save money on recruiting fees, you're also trying to fill roles quickly. And especially the rate, you know, that we're hiring at today, getting those roles filled quickly is actually a pretty important part 
of keeping up with the growth of the business. And so, you know, aside from our networks, LinkedIn is pretty crucial for us uh, from a recruiting perspective where I probably have four or five people a day, you know, asking what jobs we have available because they're seeing my content, they're seeing Tilt's content, they're seeing, you know, other people's content on the team. And I think one of the things that we've tried to do is, you know, one, portray Tilt as like a fun place to work. I think we all enjoy what we're doing. And I think that comes across, you know, when people talk to us, you know, about the business, but also talking about the bigger mission of what we're building. And for, you know, a lot of, especially like senior level, like A players, they really want to believe in the mission of what they're doing on a day-to-day basis. You're not, as an A player, like your goal is not to go punch a clock. It's not, hey, I want to go work from nine to five and get paid. And, you know, I don't really care you know, what I'm doing, most really talented people want to be challenged and want to work at a place where they're making a difference in a broader landscape. And for us, you know, the, the idea of trying to change the payment landscape for the better and really build something the right way, I think is something that has attracted a lot of people to come on board with Dill because it's a challenging work environment. There's a lot to do and we have fun doing it. Yeah, I was going to ask about competing talent, A players with, you know, companies like Google and Apple, but it sounds like you guys have already done a very good job on LinkedIn so that people come to you. But do you feel the talent war going on for you guys? Because that, I think that's a top problem for seed companies to recruit talent. Yeah, I mean, look, hiring is hard. And especially as you're trying to attract, you know, more, more senior level leadership to come on board, it is difficult. But, you know, I think for us, at least the feedback that we've gotten from, you know, candidates that we've hired recently is that the culture of the team was actually a big part of the reason why they decided to come work with Till. You know, we're offering competitive salary packages, but frankly, so is everybody else. And so, you know, oftentimes the candidates that are signing up with Till, we know that they have three or four other offers. And so the question is, how do you differentiate yourself? If your only answer is, well, we're going to pay them an extra 30 grand, that's not actually a very good answer. I think for us, you know, one of the big things that it's not even like we're trying to advertise the culture. I think it just comes out organically that like we've built a great culture within Tilt and we have other great leaders that as people go through the interview process and meet the different members of the Tilt team, they're like, wow, I would, I would actually really enjoy, you know, working with this group of people on a yep. day-to-day basis. And, and I think that's been, frankly, a pretty big part of our you know differentiation where a lot of the stuff is table stakes. You've got to have great salary packages. You've got to have great benefits. you got to offer employee stock option packages, but everybody's doing that. And so you got to yeah. find a way to differentiate yourself outside of just the comp package. Yeah. And I think even for podcasts like this, like having to be able to listen to the CEO talk, you know, so confidently about the company, knowing so much about business, I think it just gives so much confidence to your prospective employees in the future as well. So I, I think appreciate that's anybody awesome. that's willing to listen to me talk for an hour. So, you know, certainly appreciate <laughs> the people that are willing to, to tune in and listen. And if my experience resonates with them, you know, we'd certainly love to have them come join us here at Tilt. Okay. Awesome. So I think the final question for me, which is, I want to want, want you, Caleb, to look ahead at Tilt. So what do you think the next three to five years will be like for you guys? Yeah, great, great question. So, you know, for us, the core of the business has always been about this concept of pay back as a service. And, and that's still, you know, a big part of the mission and a big part of the journey that, that we're chasing. But I think our customers being these, these ISVs and, and software platforms have other needs that I think we're in a unique position to solve. And so, you know, we plan to expand our offerings outside of just this core pay back as a service a solution to help solve other pain points and, and frankly, create additional revenue streams 
for our, our software partners. And so a lot of my time and energy is going to building out future product ideas that some of these things won't see the light of day for, you know, 24 months, but, you yeah. know, working on it uh, today and, you know, certainly hope to see the growth trajectory only continue, you know, to accelerate and get to, you know, 500, a thousand employees, you know, within the business because the problem that we're solving for is enormous. Uh, you know, there's trillion yeah. dollars capital that, that are available for us to, to process. I certainly believe that, that we have the ability to go scoop up, you know, pretty significant market share over the next couple of years. So I'm, I'm certainly excited, uh, you know, for what the next couple of years have in store, but maybe, maybe I can get on the podcast in 12, 24 months and share you know, what the, oh, yeah. it's been like. That would be awesome though. Cause I have no doubt you guys will achieve 500 to thousand employees very, very soon. I uh, have no doubt. So thank you so much, Caleb, for joining on the show and sharing so much about, you know, what you have been through as an entrepreneur, lessons you've learned and advice that you've given. And as I said earlier in the podcast, when I just started two years ago, I wish I had listened to this episode because it gave me so much advice on everything I needed to know as a builder to get started. So thank you so much, Caleb, for joining the show and hope you see you again here soon. Awesome, George. Thank you so much for having me on today. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. So that is a wrap. And I think something Caleb said really struck a chord about building in public because my first business has been built in private. So we're not really building in public where you don't really have a landing page. We ask our customers to sign an NDA with us um, because we're really afraid to getting having other companies to copy us, which you know ended up happening anyways. So I think my mistake back then is just I really wished we could have built in public and just to attending you know trade shows, to attending title fetch interviews, podcast interviews, and YouTube interviews, which sound impossible at a time because we're so afraid everyone's going to copy us. But I think it turns out you actually get more believers and you have more people trusting your business when you're building in public. So that I have learned a bunch. And I think secondly, having a really great sales skills is very important. I know Caleb comes from sort of a sales background before starting Tealed. But I think, you know, if you're even an engineering founder, just like myself, there's also a lot to learn just knocking on doors, door-to-door sales, which I'm sure not many people wanted to try that. But I think... There are many scenarios where as a founder, you have to sell, right? For example, when you are pitching to a potential employee, an engineer who is currently working at Google or Meta, I think there's a lot of things that you have to do to get them to be in your camp, convince them to join you. On the other hand, I think pitching to investors and accepting rejection is also something Caleb is very adamant about. And I personally agree. If you're pitching to 100 investors, 99 might say no. And facing rejection, you just see that it's nothing about you or your products. Just that you have to do a lot of sales in order to get to one yes. I think that applies to employees, that applies to investors, that applies to your customers. And sales is a very important skill that I think really deserves to put this episode as an awkward episode. So thank you so much, Caleb, for all the insights that you have given us. We hope to be catching up with Caleb very soon. And thank you so much for listening to the awkward episode. We have you know more weeks of content coming up really soon. I'm really excited to be sharing this journey with you as we embark on learning more and improving ourselves. Um, to just not in tech, but, you know, in everything about business. So thank you so much. I'm George Poo, and I'll see you again soon. Mm-hmm.